Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is PlushCare. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. You are listening to Missed Apex Podcast. We live F1. Welcome to Missed Apex Podcast. I'm your host, Richard Spanners Ready. We are an independent podcast produced in the podcasting shed with the kind permission of our better halves. We aim to bring you a race review before your Monday morning commute. We might be wrong. But we're first. Well, F1 2022 is steadily underway. What are we? Five races in and just about to go into the European leg. And I think we have an early contender for the Drivers' Championship. Despite reliability issues, Red Bull and Max Verstappen really have been, in my opinion, the class operation of the field. But there's still lots to come this season. Ferrari have placed a, shall we say, an inquiry as to how much the Bulls are spending on their upgrades, and Mercedes have got to really put up or shut up in an engineering term when it comes to their performance at Barcelona. So we'll be looking ahead to the Spanish Grand Prix, we'll be looking at the latest F1 news, and we'll be answering your questions from our mailbag. I'm joined on the panel by Matt Two Rumpets. Currently not breathing in more pollen than oxygen, thank you. I was just saying that I was out on a walk earlier and instead of doing the condensation breath, I was doing pollen breath. So I feel you, brother. Uh, We've got our expert racing driver, Brad Philpott. Fresh off the plane from Barcelona, but a week too soon. Yeah, you picked the wrong time. And our video producer, Uncle Steve, Steve Amy. How's it going, Steve? G'day. G'day, Spanners. Uh, Good to be here again. It's been a while. Yeah, it's good to have your perspective on the panel. And I'll tell you what, before we get to the mailbag, let's start with a bit of news. Well, I alluded to it a little in the intro, Matt, but Ferrari have come out with a very passive-aggressive inquiry. And it was in kind of response and context of Christian Horner 
having a little bit of a shot at Mercedes by going, well, it was all a bit stressy off track last season, but this season, it's all been lovely and chill, hey, hey? Because, you know, that Toto Wolf guy. And then, without skipping a beat, Ferrari come out with this kind of inquiry saying, how much have everybody spent? How much has everyone spent of their budget cap for upgrades? And actually, it's a surprisingly low figure, the total that you're allowed to spend now for in-season upgrades. It surprised me. Well, I think that total is based off their um, their idea of how the budgeting works uh, because there's some flexibility for the teams. You know, you have a total number and then you have certain things that go into the category. And so Ferrari's, I think, just designated a number. But what's fun about this and new and different is they are already actively trying to use it as a cudgel against Red Bull suggesting that yeah. they've already spent a lot of their development budget according to Ferrari's calculations, which is based on some homogenized FIA figures that I think the teams have seen. And they may not be wrong, but Red Bull are being hilarious in response saying, well, it only looks like a lot because we don't have Carlos Sainz crashing our cars every other race that has to be paid for. They didn't specifically say it like that. Uh, they pretty much said it like that. Oh, Okay. Well, that that was uh, not Horner. That was um, Marco, I believe, who who, who made the who okay. put the needle back in. But what Ferrari has gone and done, uh, according to reporting out of Italy, is they've actually prepared a budget dossier based on their observation of new parts, and they're going to be giving it to the FIA to sort of help them. Yeah. But so we talked about budget caps years and years out, and saying, well, how on earth? Would you ever police that? And I wondered if it was more like you do kind of a self-assessment tax return. Like everyone puts their, their finances in. It's not necessarily everyone's going to get it checked. But the penalty for breaking it or for cheating on that, it should be high enough to be a deterrent. I guess what Ferrari are doing here is drawing attention to it and going, well, maybe maybe now would be a good time to have a little look. Yeah, well, I, this is their expressed purpose that they don't wish for this to become an issue at the end of the season overspending. And so they are just presenting information they have gathered to the FIA for their understanding. This is no different than writing and saying, I've decided um, that I wish to develop a super wiggly bit that looks like the one on Team X's floor. And I'm just curious, if I did this wiggly bit like this, would it be legal? And then the FIA will say, no, that wouldn't be legal. And Team X then has to take that part off of their car. This is the game that teams always play, but now we get to see it in finance. We see, see, Brad, this is a question of, um, of approach in the season. I guess the risk is if they had no upgrade budget, they'd come out the box with a car and then that would be it for the season. So, I mean, we wouldn't want that because it would sort of be decided, wouldn't it, by, by Bahrain? Yeah, and there's, there's a lot of races left. So we're still talking potentially realistically about Mercedes maybe being able to recover still. I think we're we're getting kind of towards the end of of that possibility, but there's there's no use in bringing out a car which then cannot be upgraded through the season because you just run out of money. And I've been quite interested to see just how far teams are going to to push these rules and see what they can get away with and what's acceptable and what isn't in exactly as Matt was saying, much the same way as the technical regs. So, what was the a, a Ferrari approach, Matt? Because you were talking about how they had a a car where they could go in a number of different upgrade paths, but we were worried that, that that would bring them into their budget cap quicker, if you like, because that's a more expensive way of doing it. Well, the Ferrari approach 
was sort of we've got we've got a good car. It is fast. It is competitive. So we are going to take our time with the introduction of developments and make sure we're very certain about what we bring to the track. So we're going to see the first big step for them at Barcelona. They're bringing a new floor, a new rear wing. They're going to reshape their side pods some. They're not changing the basic shape. But they allowed their uh, their inherent design to be very modular so that if they got it completely wrong, they'd have a chance of recovery throughout the season. But it's only a relatively recent thing, I think, where people are, are very concerned about the teams being close or, or one team not getting an unfair advantage. Steve, when did you start watching F1? I'm not age shaming you, but I, I bet it was a very long time ago. Uh, in 1978 was the first year Blimey, I watched. 1978. But like in those days, people weren't overly concerned if, if one or two teams were further ahead. I mean, the field spread w- was much bigger than it is now. Oh, yeah, they didn't care. Um, money, you spent as much money as you could possibly get from whatever sources you could get. Yeah. I mean, it's a di- di- totally different thing today. Uh, and I, I, mean, I have a question about how closely the FIA are monitoring, the, you know, the, the spend of each of the teams. And to what level are they, um, you know, investigating? Because we all know that there are lots of accountants around who are good at hiding how they spend money, and the teams are good at that too. Yeah, it's that you spent most of your budget on the accountants. Why is that, Mister Marco? <laughs> Brad? Yeah, it's just there must be so many loopholes. There must be. I saw um, Engine Mode Eleven tweeted yesterday or today um, that the the budget cap is useless in his eyes or something to that effect because there's just so many potential ways of mm. of hiding where you're spending the money you know moving moving certain people into um you know marketing roles or, or just different parts of the company that are omitted from the from the actual budget but they can still kind of get on with the same job and and have the same benefit to the team so i'm i'm curious i'm sure they've thought this through i'm sure they've they've really have thought about it but i'd I would like to know how they're going about policing that. I guess for, for anyone newer to the sport and, and for those who can't remember exactly what the budget cap is. Um, so you know, the, the idea was to make it so that teams couldn't run away spending having a thousand staff. Mercedes being probably the key example in the hybrid era and then just maintaining that advantage through just brute force of, of labour and finance. So in the in the olden days that Steve was talking about, the budgets of the teams were not sufficiently high that it would be then, you know, crippling for or, or impossible that someone could come in and 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 take over. But looking at that same Mercedes budget, Brad, it was unlikely that teams were going to come in and spend the same as as Mercedes. So if they didn't do the budget cap, it would have been Mercedes dominance forever. Yeah, and the thing we're not really touching on here at, at the same time is the limit on wind tunnel hours and teraflops of cfd data which is also inversely limited depending on your your performance as well so that's that's got to be another thing that ferrari will be pointing to in terms of red bull like they must be trying to work out how much wind tunnel time they've used or or potentially used i think that's more tightly regulated by the fia uh, under the sporting regulations i don't believe there are sporting penalties if you break the cap. I think they are just financial penalties. I do, I am going to say right now, I do need to go back and revisit the regs and make sure okay. about that. So if I'm wrong, you know where to send the email. 
if that really is just financial penalties, surely that is a huge loophole <laughs> yeah. in terms of the budget cap. It's because going, oh, no. you can just just use as many wind tunnel hours or, or as much CFD as you want and then just pay the fine. Because if it doesn't hurt you in a sporting way and and you're you've got enough money left to spend, go on that. Just to be clear, I think the budget cap regulations are separate from the wind tunnel and CFD ones. Those, I believe, do um, will carry sporting penalties okay. if you violate them. But I think, at least when they were first introduced, the idea of the budget cap was probably given a little bit of wiggle room for everyone to get used to it so that it you know, wouldn't change the outcome of a championship, for example. Um, they've been talking about this budget cap for, what, five years now how much time do they need to get used to the fact that you know we have to you know put a, a lid on what we're spending yeah yeah and i think that you know spending will will definitely come into it when we talk about prize money in a little bit but i just want to rescue us a little bit with financial irregularities and uh, accountants hiding things by just exploring the motivation behind Ferrari's, you know, doing this and and trying to set the record straight. And I think the reason that they're doing this must be because they've been holding back a little bit. They must have been saving a little from their initial budget to go, right, let's see how these first races go. We've got this upgrade coming in Barcelona. We've got this Urs upgrade coming or whatever. And they just want to make sure that the step that Red Bull have taken isn't a step that they're going to be able to repeat again and again and again. So at the top of the show, I was saying, you know, Red Bull performance-wise have taken that step up. So ignore the fact that Red Bull have just been the better team. They've had the better strategy. They've had the better drivers. They've done everything perfectly. Ferrari have been making little mistakes here and there that have just taken them out. But Red Bull have taken a performance leap as well. So do we think that you know Red Bull have spent the, up- the, the upgrade money already and that therefore have put themselves at a bit of a disadvantage for the rest of the season. I think that's the the thing that Ferrari are trying to focus. Uh, yeah, I would agree with you. They actually said, you know, we didn't develop a Miami spec wing because it it would have been impractical in money terms to do so. You know, we got a low and, and, and a high downforce, so we got like a Monza spec and a regular one that we fiddle with, but we didn't develop a, spe- a special wing just for that. And they have been playing this game really almost from the from the beginning of the season. And I, if I'm the FIA, I was always counting on the teams to do a lot of this financial forensic accounting for me because I know that they're going to because because it matters in in the end, and it'll be a problem for teams that overspend. Right. I am going to risk a little bit more tech here. I know some of you like tech. And you, I hope you enjoyed the segment show that we did on Sunday in general, by the way. Um, we really enjoy putting those together. It's brilliant to be able to, to not sometimes not just have a panel and, you know, go through news articles and say what we think about them. Sometimes it's great to go out and find someone that knows about the thing. So the Miami track was very topical. So it was great to catch up with, uh, with Campbell, with Dr. Campbell about tracks. And it was great to you know, talk about the Lewis Hamilton pit call with an actual F1 strategist. So we've enjoyed doing that and we're making more and more friends within the F1 content space that can come and say stuff to us and and give us that that knowledge. So we have had a lot of tech and there is, if you're a patron, uh, an extra patron. How long is it, Matt, the extra patron tech? It's about 35, 36 minutes. Blimey. Okay, so that's about to drop in the patron 
only feed. <laughs> That's not much of an incentive, but patreon.com forward slash missed apex if you're a mega nerd and you want the extra content from that it's not better content it's not a paywall this is them just waffling after the recording yeah to be fair it would have been about three times that long but it turns out zoom has imposed a new limit that i was unaware of well there you go so you were saved um, but we'll just squeeze in a little bit more tech just give us a quick rundown what are you expecting to see in terms of upgrades for barcelona all right so ferrari is going to bring a new floor a new rear wing and a new side pod i already mentioned they're bringing new paint that's worth saving saving them about a kilogram of weight so they're expecting to shed two kilograms off their current car weight overall when they show up i know brad's got a good um a good set of uh, maths for weight versus time i will just completely serendipitously god i said it correctly Ah. um karting on a 30 second track in a rental car and formula one a Formula One car on an average Formula One length circuit happened to be a pretty similar weight penalty no time way. calculation, cool. just just by fluke, and um and so it's roughly ten kilos equals three tenths of a second. Obviously, different tracks are different lengths. A really long track, a ten kilo addition is going to be a bigger penalty, and a shorter track. Okay, so less say Spain is a ninety second lap. Yeah, so, so that's probably Spain Barcelona is probably the the kind of typical track that we're talking about so every 10 kilograms would be a second and a half Uh, no every 10 kilograms would be three tenths of a second for every 30 seconds you said no on that's on the go-kart track Uh, so so that's why i say it just happens to be that most rental car tracks are roughly 30 seconds most formula one tracks are roughly a minute and a half but a formula one car loses about three tenths of a second for every extra 10 kilos of weight you add and that also tends to be roughly the same. same ah, okay. So two kilograms, you know, we're talking a good chunk of a tenth of a, a lap. Yeah, it could be the difference between pole and third. You know, it's it's going to be reasonably significant. And oh. it's, you know, the, it's gains that add up, isn't it? And what I mean, what kind of paint were they using before if they can save two kilograms? Uh, heavier paint. If you think of when you paint anything, if you hold a can of paint, and I'm sure it takes oh, yeah. a lot more than just one rattle can of paint to paint a Formula One car... They're quite heavy things, aren't they? If you just ran the car completely naked, that is a significant saving. Speaking of running naked, I know, Steve, they've, they've stopped you doing that in your neighbourhood now. but <laughs> Yeah, I got caught by the police. Never mind. Um, Williams have done much the same thing, have they not? They've stripped down the amount of paint that they, they're running on their car. And if you look at it now, it's kind of carbon fibre on the bottom and they've only got you know paint on the... Uh, the spine of the car, really. So I guess they're doing that for exactly the same reason. Is wow. there any reason why uh, cars don't just strip all the paint off and just run purely with the carbon fiber? Marketing. <laughs> Brad, is that what you're going to say? Mm, yeah, yeah, fair enough. That's yeah, it. of course. I mean, I've I've thought this for years. Like, if teams were really serious about saving all the weight they could, they would just run bare carbon fiber. But up until this year, really most teams are able to get under the weight limit anyway. So it's not a very big trade-off to have, you know, an extra kilo or two kilos of or an extra couple of kilos less ballast to play with for the sake of having the color you want and having a good marketing strategy. But this year it really has come to that. They really are trying to even save on the paint. It's the first time I can remember it. Yeah. Or was it, was it the 2014 Caterham that was, um, that was running mostly with duct tape? And that's why, yeah. do you remember Kobayashi? By he, the end of the season. Do you remember yeah. the scandal? Kobayashi, he took a picture of like the wishbone or something and it was held together with duct tape. It, it can't have been the wishbone. Uh, but yeah, that's a, that's a significant weight saving if you can avoid the duct tape. So Matt, what else have we got? 
look to look forward to? Well, apparently Red Bull are bringing a big update or an, and a significant update. I won't say big, but a significant update. Well, this will update. be their last one then. This will be, uh, well, according to Ferrari, this will be their third yeah. in five races. So but I mean, I'm sure they're going to be able to keep that up all year. Yeah. yeah. I mean, so, so the takeaway, Brad, is that Red Bull are definitely cheating. So there we go. If you could say that, I'll edit it in so that you said, that, said it because you already get the hate anyway. I mean, I hope they are because then I get to I get to really get behind them being like the baddies. Yeah, but but I don't I don't know that at all. And actually, Red Bull surprised certainly me, maybe us, by having strong development last season. Yes, and I'm sure we were all saying, "Oh, that's going to harm them next year," and it it hasn't yet. Maybe maybe this is when it is going to start harming them. But I guess we wait and see um, how it pans out over the next few races. Or maybe that's why Ferrari is already asking questions. Like, yeah. how much could we, how much, yes. How could you afford to do all of that and still, you know, show yeah. up uh, freshly showered for dinner? Uh, Alpha is bringing new parts and they have made improvements to their simulator, they say, that are really helping them. But the team that we're really interested in, and let's admit it, is Mercedes. I know. Can we take a, a brief pause, though, at Alpha? Because... Yeah. Uh, Everyone was like, you know, much harping on about Valtteri Bottas securing the new contract, and he was he was transformed when he got that Alfa Romeo contract. Don't you remember? He he grew two inches tall, and his buttocks became more juicy, which is why we're getting photos of them everywhere. For some reason, it's a very lovely bottom, but we're seeing an awful lot of it. He though needs to start capitalizing on that Alfa Romeo performance because I, I don't think he's going to get it from 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 Joe no disrespect he's he's new and he's possibly categorized as a as a buy-in driver if that's the new terminology we're using so Alfa Romeo's success hinges on Bottas delivering Brad and I I'm, I'm not sure if it's gonna he's showing loads of promise he saved a couple of my weekends uh, you know my gambling weekends but I just, I just don't know if he's going to be the the consistent number one driver that people want him to be. So the Bottas situation is is quite an interesting case study for me this year because up until this year, I think most people would have looked at Bottas uh, and his his performances over the last few years and said, yeah, you know, he's been okay, nothing spectacular. Hamilton has clearly been stronger, consistently stronger. This year, people have been very quick to praise Bottas and say what a great driver he is and how well he's doing and how Hamilton is just off the pace and Russell is, is showing him the way. Now, those two things can't both be true unless Bottas just r- randomly discovered a load of pace over the winter and Hamilton yeah. or Hamilton lost it or both. And I don't think either of those scenarios are, are probably true. So if Bottas is often out-qualifying the Mercedes or, or running ahead of it on the road relatively comfortably or you know at least managing to hold his own surely that says the alpha is actually a really good car and that bottas is able to you know bottas doing a standard bottas performance which would normally put him quite far behind hamilton russell oh i see what you're saying he's now running ahead of them you know relatively frequently that says to me that the alpha must either be much easier to find the right window or just actually a bit quicker than the mercedes um, or certainly in the right conditions quicker. Uh, yeah. it just, I, I find it weird that the same people who would have written off Bottas last year and used Bottas as a way of saying, well, Hamilton's not that good because you know Bottas just isn't that good. He's just had a, an easy teammate to beat. Those same people will this year be saying, look, see, Hamilton's not good, um, and Bottas is doing a great job yeah. and beating him 
like on merit. So it's, it's something doesn't quite tally up there. And I think the Alpha is actually quite a quick car. I would agree. I think the Alpha maybe suits his driving style better. Certainly, he seems better able to look after the tires than he did with the Mercedes, although he's in the midfield. But the question I would put to you in return is looking at his ability to pass people and fight in the midfield doesn't look like the same Botas that I saw when I was at Mercedes, where we constantly gave him stick for things like leaving doors wide open for competitors and stuff like that. Yeah, and for doing things like going off track, hitting the wall, letting both Mercedes easily pass you, that kind of thing, Matt? Distracted by my mirrors is a thing. Brad? Yeah, that that was the the moment where Botas really looked a bit more like old butter. Not that he used to you know, hit the walls and stuff, but just throwing away a position which is probably yeah, reasonably comfortable. Yeah, yeah defendable. So, um, but in the past, I, I would have expected him to be easily passed. Uh, obviously by a Mercedes if he's an Alfa Romeo in the past, but, but if we're assuming those cars are roughly equal, I still would have thought the two drivers behind would have pretty easily passed him and he seemed to be holding his own until yeah. that point. And uh, I guess finally, Matt, we'll just end on the Mercedes upgrades before we go to the mailbag. Uh, yeah, and, and this, is, um, this gets very interesting because Mercedes are going to bring a new floor that's supposed to help reduce the porpoising. And um, they may even um, either look at their data from the original car or possibly even run the original car, I, I was. it's not clear to me what they're going to do, the one that had bigger side pods on it. Because as it turns out, a lot of the focus for Mercedes is going to be on the floor. And specifically, the other teams, because they have side pods, are running, and this is in the patron pod, but we didn't talk about it on Sunday, I swear. The problem for Mercedes is the floor flexing. And the other teams are running stays inside the side pods to help keep their floor oh, stiff mercedes don't can't have any. do that and so and so it could be a very big uh, decision point for them going forward as to how they deal with it and the floor they're bringing to barcelona is going to be um i think decisive in terms of what direction they had the rest of the season all right so expect to see the mercedes with just a giant crossbar from their non-side pods uh, down to the floor there you go i solved it you can have that one for free Mercedes. Let's move on to the mailbag. Okay, I've been incredibly pleased with the response to these mailbag shows. Uh, the Miami mailbag was was brilliant, and uh, we've had a similar response here for our ba- Barcelona mailbag too. The only difficult thing, actually, is reading out other people's writing on emails when it comes to doing this, so bear with me as I try to spit this out as best as I can. So teeth in, everybody. The first question is from Drew Nichols, who says, Hello, I recently found your podcast and I'm loving it. Thank you very much, Drew. I am a very new fan of F1. Well, Drew, you are in good company indeed. There's many, many fine new F1 fans. And F1 first caught his attention, says Drew, in 2021 when Lewis and Max crashed at Silverstone. Okay, nothing controversial there. I loosely followed the rest of the season and watched the Netflix season over winter. I've been fully locked in this season. I'm very interested in F1's history. I've been watching Grand Prix from previous years and studying how the cars have evolved. Do you guys have any previous races 
you consider favorites that you would could recommend and i think that's that's really interesting obviously it's it's hard to think of very specific um exact races but we can certainly talk about eras uh, what what about you brad what what era of f1 makes you go oh, i could actually sit down and watch a, a whole grand prix of it Oh, well, Spanners, I'm actually going to slightly contradict you because I did think of a very specific Oh, okay. Race. No, that's fine. I mean, Go for it. It is in an era, but I don't think I could sit and watch this whole era of cars because, I, for one, I can't watch standard definition anymore. My eyes don't like it. It looks too blurry. It's <laughs> yeah. like I've got um, oil smeared across the lens. But if you can scroll back in, in your timeline to 1998 and watch oh, okay. the, the Belgian Grand Prix oh, yes. at Spa-Francorchamps in 1998... That's one of those special races that stands out. So you're going to see, uh, as a new F1 fan, you're going to see extremely different looking cars, um, very different engines, very different drivers. Um, uh, but you'll you'll have some kind of links to the past. You'll have Schumacher Senior. You'll probably have, in 1998, did we have Verstappen Senior? Was Jos driving for Arrows back then? Um, you're certainly going to know some people, but the race is action-packed and one of the surprise upset results um and you'll even you'll even learn about spare cars because <laughs> half the field had to jump in spare cars for the restart yeah so it was cars were obliterated it was raining wasn't it at spa and uh and then they went round. what is what's i was gonna say sandovot that's monaco what's the source the source there we go and then basically i think the third or fourth place car crashed and and then no one could see what was happening and and i think 14 cars ended up being being t- being wrecked basically if i remember correctly i think it was coulthard's mistake i don't i don't remember exactly what the mistake was but yeah I, i'm pretty sure coulthard and the mclaren lost it at the front caused carnage behind and then the race was stopped and you had a whole host of drivers running back to the pits to jump in the t car the spare car um which won't necessarily have been set up for them they'll have had to wedge themselves in hope they can reach the pedals hope they can <laughs> figure out whatever setup the other driver puts on it and then they took the restart and there was, I don't want to spoil it for you, but there was a surprise result. If you can watch that whole race through, it'll be uh, an exciting one. So that's my that's my pick from the past. Steve? Well, I think Brad's right. The end of the 90s, um, mid-90s to the end of the 90s, is probably some of the best racing that Formula One has ever seen. Um, there was a, a lot of good drivers. The cars were interesting. Um the teams were close, and it was before we got to the point where suddenly Schumacher was beginning to dominate the whole you know, uh, competition, and we had to wait another ten years from, uh, from you know up until two thousand and seven. We had to wait really before we got to the point where uh, there were a bunch of teams all vying for um, you know a chance to win the the championship. So the late nineties is really good. Brad's right also in that the television pictures from that year are pretty horrible um, and you should go back and have a look at the late 80s if you want to see what really bad pictures and bad coverage is like. But some of the races in the late 80s were good too, but for very different reasons. Uh, They were more like gung-ho cowboys back in the late 80s. You know, I'm surprised that that a few, as many of them survived, to tell you the truth. Uh, there was almost like this, this cut-off point for you know, professionalism within F1 drivers. And it sort of straddles Michael Schumacher's career. Like he probably came in really as this first generation of like super fit drivers that were real professional athletes. You know, they didn't have a cigarette hanging out of, of their mouth and stumbling out of bars. Um, but then by the time Schumacher left, 
which was, I mean, as recently as 2012 after his comeback, he was then in a professional field, you know, with a teammate like Rosberg and the likes of Hamilton. And so, so Brad, I think you've picked somewhere in the middle and that grid that you were uh, trying to, to, to figure out, it was uh, Hack, Mika Hakkinen and Coulthard in the McLaren Mercedes. Yeah, Hill was in the Jordan. So that was his last season in Formula One. 99 actually was his last oh, season. Was it? There we so go. the following year where Frentzen really trounced him and Hill had kind of had enough by then. But yeah, this was, this was his final competitive year. You could put it that way. Oh, oh, up savage, Brad. Fair enough. And then if you go Villeneuve, Fisichella, Schumacher. Uh, oh, that was the other Schumacher. So that was Ralph Schumacher, Frentzen, Alessi, Wurtz, Herbert. So I think like here, yeah, there's, um, it's definitely, I think in that, in that crossover period um, between athletic drivers that we know today and, you know, Nakano's in there, uh, Salo, Diniz, Panis, who did win a race. To be completely fair, these these kind of professionalism crossovers or, or evolution, um, they kind of they will take a little bit of time because even the most fit drivers there, they only need to be fit enough to beat the next fittest driver. So that's kind of like a constant arms race, isn't it? So I don't know who was the fittest back then, but just say for example, um, if we take Schumacher out of it, Michael Schumacher, say Hakkinen was was particularly looking after himself. He'll only really need to be as fit as Coulthard. And if Coulthard wasn't really super, you know, at the gym every single day, then that's kind of as as far as you need to go, isn't it? Whereas nowadays, it's just part of the job that you are training every single day and you're really strict yeah. about it. So I'm, everyone is. I'm even like looking at the, say, if you span Hamilton's career from when he joined, who he was racing and who he's racing now, it's interesting that he's probably facing a, a stronger or a more like athlete field. If you look at when he first started, people that were in in that grid, uh, Verts, Trulli, Coulthard still there, Kovalainen, obviously one of the newer drivers, Nick, Nick Heinfeld and um and and Weber. And I think Weber's probably more 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 suited to that old school generation of drivers, don't you think, Steve? Uh no, I don't think. I think that uh, he, he always took the whole thing of, you know, being physically fit and oh, yeah, you know, course, approaching yeah. his uh, his racing from a professional point of view. Um, you know, in the late 80s, he was racing here in Australia in, you know, Formula Fords and, and other categories, and, and he was by far and away the most professional driver in those, you know, local series. And then when he went to England, I believe he carried that with him, Um I mean, I remember interviewing him in 1998 at the Australian Grand Prix before he went to Europe and being just totally stunned by how focused he was on doing one thing, and that was being the best racing driver in the world. And he understood that it was going to be a very hard road to hoe. And I think when he got to Europe, he he realised that uh, there were a lot of people there that had exactly the same kind of mental attitudes that he did and it wasn't going to be easy for him anymore. All right, Steve, I was only joking. (laughs) Sorry, man. I realise we might be going off on a slight tangent here and I'll try and leave it at this, but we're talking about how professionally fit the drivers now are and how it's like a field of athletes. Is Vettel just wearing clothes that make him look like he's got a dad bod? Or does Vettel actually have slight man boobs and a bit of a belly because i was really surprised to see that but i seem to consistently see that when yeah. you see like pierre gasly doesn't matter what he's wearing 
The guy looks trim, toned, like absolutely as fit as you can be. And Vettel doesn't look like that. He looks like a like a like a dad thirties dad. Yeah. I, I, I don't I need to be very clear that we're not like fat shaming and we're not like body shaming or anything like this. Uh because like look around at the panel. We're, we're, we're apart from Brad, we're not in a position to. But if you saw a, a top flight footballer in the shape that Vettel was in, I think that would that would be on a football podcast. That would be a, a discussion topic. And I haven't seen him without a top on. So I might be completely wrong. It might be unflattering clothes. No, I've made I've the same a few times yeah, now. I've, I've made the same ob- observation. And but he is a dad, to be fair, Matt. He is indeed a dad, but more importantly, he was out for like three weeks with COVID. Do you, do you know that I I've noticed that of Vettel in the past that he doesn't come across as the the most athletic generally looking or or even the way he moves around and struts around he's never struck me as that so whether or not that is actually like taking away from his performance now brad because maybe he's he's had his whole career not being particularly focused on the the mega fitness side of it and that makes you wonder how how ultimately important is the fitness side of formula one yeah, it kind of tends to detract a bit from what we've just been saying about how yeah how everyone has to be an athlete nowadays. But in my experience, in terms of race fitness, I've raced against some reasonably chunky people who yeah. have been extremely fast, and I've had teammates in the same car as me, so I'm I'm directly comparing data, who are significantly older and much heavier, like more towards the overweight side than me. And I've seen firsthand that provided they're they're race fit, provided yeah. the muscles they need in order to not lose concentration in the race, you know, provided they're um, aerobically Capable. good enough and their neck muscles aren't giving up on them and their, you know, their arms are strong enough to turn the steering wheel. They, they don't have to look super trim. You don't have to. It's, it's more when you're weight limited. So in Formula okay. 1, for example, yeah. you are, as we spoke about earlier, restricted by your weight. So maybe that's more of it at the moment. But you're a you know, sports car driver. Do you think you need to be fitter to be a a sports car driver perhaps with less driving aids or a formula one driver i'd imagine with more g-force would require a more core fitness i think obviously formula one cars the the forces involved are brutal yeah. and the less mass you have that is being thrown around probably the easier and obviously the stronger you are and, and the, the mm. fitter in general you are the easier it is I think you do get away more more in tin top racing and and um, other non high level single seater series. You can get away with being a, a little bit less fit. So, yeah, I, I'm surprised if if yeah. Vettel. If, we might be completely wrong, but if Vettel has begun to let himself go and he is relying purely on race fitness, having a strong neck mm. and strong arm muscles, but carrying a little bit of extra timber, I'm surprised that he hasn't seen that as an area of potential performance improvement. He's um, got, Brad, this is the argument I have with you all the time. He's got three kids, mate. It's not like choice. You know, all the other three on the panel are going, yeah, no, 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 we, we get it. We get it. Um, but yes, I, I have made that same observation, Brad. Uh, Matt. Yeah, well, I, I think you're correct to focus, especially on neck fitness, because now I'm thinking about Magnuson, who looked quite fit walking back into that car and how much of a hard time he had just even going back for testing for a day and he was utterly wrecked. If Vettel's got the neck fitness together and then he gained some weight when he was forced to sit out with COVID and hasn't lost it all yet, I don't think that's going to significantly affect him. The other thing to remember is that even though the G-forces are very heavy on your arms, Formula One 
has power steering. It's not IndyCar. It's not go-karts. So that arm strength is, is more, can I, can I move against the G-forces that I'm experiencing unless I need the raw power to actually point the wheels where I want them to go? It does, it does feel like we're being mean, but I do think it's a valid observation, Brad. Um, but like I say, we're not, we're, not, we're not going, you ugly. We are wondering whether that is saying something about his approach to, to Formula One and, and, and where, his, where his mindset is at. I think it's a reasonable question. But let's move on to the next mailbag question, and it is from Marta. Um, hello, Marta. Um, uh, Marta says, uh, hello, love the podcast. Thank you for making us American Drive to Survive newbies feel welcome, although I am from Detroit, which should count for something. I, I don't know, Matt, is that the best state? Is that why? Motor City, baby. I yeah. Boater? Motor. Oh, okay. That's where all the racing is. Detroit, is it? What kind? NASCAR? That's the, that's the car capital of the United States. I don't know. That's where Motown came from. It is. That's, that's yeah. where they build all the cars in the Indeed. United States. Yeah, I, I knew that. I knew that. That's fine. Yeah. We, we can fix that in the edit. But Marta says, um, I, w- I wonder if you and the team would tackle the psychology of being the number two driver on a good team. I can see that Checo fully understands his brief at Red Bull. I can see that Bottas drove defense at Mercedes well. C- citation needed, Marta, but yes, we get your, your general gist. And I am Team Carlos, and not just because he's so pretty, but I fear that he isn't playing along. Wasn't his job in Miami to keep Verstappen from passing him on turn one? Can you educate us on wingmen who did their jobs well? Um, that's Thanks. Marta from Motor City. So there you go. Um, it, I think it, that is a, a really interesting and multifaceted question. So we'll go to the specifics of Carlos signs. But I think, you know, we go to the person who's, a, who's done professional driving, Brad. Would you accept ever a number two role where your job was to bring it home, be the defensive person, you know, like, like Lance Strolls had people in there specifically to help his career? Is that something you'd do? So it it depends on what the alternative is, because if the alternative is to be a number one driver at a team which has no hope, that could potentially be attractive. If your ego is too bruised by accepting the fact that there might be someone who's a little bit better than you, then maybe maybe you wouldn't accept that. Maybe you would go drop down into a a lower team if that was available and be the number one driver there, accepting that your overall results are never going to be as good as being number two at a top team. However, if you're um, uh, happy enough within your skin, like settled enough and mature enough, a la someone like Perez, where you can see that the, the potential for good results is only there in a top team, and you can accept that, yeah, okay, maybe there is someone who's got a, a skill set which is better than me in one area, which at the moment is helping them out. Maybe in the future, if the formula changes, my skill set might might come into play better. Um, then, then maybe you would accept that. And I think Perez is is maybe a good example of that. Ultimately, Verstappen, I think, is just too fast for for Perez to rely on a slightly different skill set to ever bring him back in, other than occasionally. Boo. But, but you see my point. Like it's it's all about what you see as the what's going to be the bigger embarrassment: getting bad results overall, but beating your teammate, mm. a slower team, or coming second to someone who everyone accepts is really good, and there's not necessarily any shame in that. 
and um, and getting P2s and, and the occasional win. Like, I'm, I'm pretty sure, I from what I've seen, nobody slates Perez at the moment. Bottas got heat, obviously, because mm. he was you know consistently a long way behind Hamilton for a long period. Perez has had a year, and he's he's generally praised for the job he's been doing, even when he does finish quite a way behind Verstappen. So. Okay. Well, I mean, thoughts? there's definitely a few things there with, with Perez. You know, his alternative was a year out and then Williams. So he's probably made, you know, the right overall choice and, and managed to secure a Red Bull drive. I, I suppose, yeah, you, you'd think, okay, well, I, I'm in the game. I'm going to pick up the odd win. And, and who knows, maybe Verstappen gets snagged by Mercedes one year or Ferrari one year. And then all of a sudden, you know, I, I'm, I'm in the hunt to be the number one driver again. Yeah, exactly. Because number two driver doesn't mean it's not number two forever, yeah. necessarily. It, it could just be for the time being. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Cool fact: a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at uh1.com. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Well, historically, there have been uh, drivers who have made a, a good um, living at being number two drivers. Yeah. I mean, you know, Bar- Barrichello, Massa, yeah. um, and, and quite a few others. Um, I I think you've got to be realistic when you're uh, driving amongst the world's top drivers. Not everybody can be the best driver as much as everybody's ego wants them to be. You've got to be able to yeah. come to the realistic appraisal that, hey, I am not as good as the guy that in the other car in this team. Therefore, the best thing I can do is to give him all the support I can yeah. and pick up the points I can from the team doing well rather than me, you know, um, trying to uh, better, you know, become mm. the, the top driver myself and screwing it up for everybody else in the team. Well, I mean, I mean you look, if you want to look at the, the opposite of Perez in the Red Bull situation, it is, of course, you know, Ricardo who looked at that situation and went, <laughs> I'm not getting, because I don't think he was the favoured driver and he could see it and he wasn't going to settle for being the number two. Oh, no, absolutely for sure. Um, he obviously thought that he had a chance to be world champion, and perhaps in those days he did. And a, that's another question these days. Um, and yes, he took the decision that I will get out, leave the winning team, and 
you know, take the the big bucks and and go to Renault. Million, forty million to go to Renault. Yeah, sure. I mean, that's a, if someone walked up to me and said, "Here's forty million for two years," I'd have to take it too. Wouldn't Here's I? forty million, but you have to go and do the video for W uh, for WTF one or for F one's sake. Would you betray us, Steve, <laughs> for forty million? For, oh, for 40 million, I'd have to think. I'd have I to can't think even hard, believe you're I? thinking about that. It took too long to think about it. Brad, Brad. <laughs> so Steve mentioned him. Felipe Massa was a really good example of someone who was a number two driver from the outset, but he was there at Ferrari mm. learning from Schumacher. And it was always, he was like part of the succession plan. Yeah. So in that instance, if you're the young driver coming in against the experienced driver, there's no shame whatsoever in being the number two, especially if you can be a close number two, because you're going to inherit the throne potentially when that driver ultimately retires. And I know it hasn't played out like this, but if Russell was to have been sat behind Hamilton, mm. and maybe, maybe over the season it will play out like this, but if Hamilton, uh, sorry, Russell was quite close to Hamilton or very close all the way through the season this year, eventually when Hamilton retired, Russell then assumes the role of lead driver. And there would have been no shame whatsoever if that was the situation. And I'm sure that plays into how calm and accepting a driver is of being a number two as well. So you got to you know, touch on Massa there. And I don't think Massa ever ex- got explained to him that he was the number two driver at Ferrari. And But you have to remember Schumacher didn't even cite that part of his retirement was because it was time to pass the mantle on and, and Massa was the one who was to pick it up. And then Raikkonen, in the end, is the one who goes and sneaks the title in 2007. And then Massa isn't able to quite get over the line in 2008. And, and, then, and then is that when Alonso went? Was that 2007? Alonso went to Ferrari? And then instantly Massa got put as the number two driver. Or am I remembering my history wrong? I think Alonso was a couple of years later. Oh, was it later. a gap? Oh, was it a gap? Um, he went to Renault for those kind of dodgy years for a couple of years before he then... But of course, Massa had that part machinery thing go and hit him in the helmet and he was out for a significant uh, portion of the the season and some would argue it never quite came back the same but certainly when he was partnered with both uh, Alonso and then Vettel for a little while as well he was a, a clear number two. Uh, Matt sorry you were waiting to come in. Uh, well no I think the psychology of the driver is important if I'm in a team and my teammate is beating me I can surmise that they're better than me, or I can surmise that in this various combination of circumstances, they're better than me. And if I think that second way, then it's pretty easy to say, I'm still going to drive the absolute best I can and do the best I can for my team, because doing the best you can is how you get to be that good at anything. So any task you take on, you want to do to that level. So I think there, the psychology of being, but that's in a team tends to play fair with their drivers. And I'm going to bring up Alex Albon now, doing quite well in Williams. Thank you very much. As well as anyone could do in Williams at the moment. Uh, but at Red Bull, and, and this is where I think you get into what team are you in and how it affects your brain. At Red Bull, he was often two or three iterations behind Verstappen in the same weekend in terms of development. In, in the car, and I, and I know we've talked about this in tech time before, so I apologize for breaking it up. But if you're in that situation and you know you're getting all uh, before it's close to a settled deal, it, it's it's got to be harder if you're an established driver. Like if I was a Ricardo mm. and I was constantly saying and I was told from the third race, you're you're not getting the developments first. It's all going to Norris. I think that's a lot harder to live with 
than at a team where you take turns with stuff and whoever the lead driver is automatically gets the best strategy, which is how I think most teams do it these days. Uh, two little bits of news there that just popped into my head. Were you talking there, Matt? Uh, first one I, is that I think the Williams is probably, it, it seems like a, a reasonable car. I think it is. Latifi is, well, you made the comment, oh, he's doing as well as anyone could do in Williams. I mean, it's a point scoring car. Haven't they scored points in the last two, two races? races? So three points total. So there's obviously something in that car. And for FP1 in Barcelona, the Dutch Formula E driver, what's his name? Uh, De Vries. De Vries. Uh, I've got that right, haven't I? He's the, the Formula E driver. Yeah, he's yeah. Formula E for Mercedes, now to be in a McLaren in the future. Oh, the McLaren Formula E team. Because yeah. Mc- yeah. McLaren have just bought the Mercedes Formula E team and taken that over. So De Vries is going to get this FP1 run out. And like, if he is like matching Albon in FP1, I know they all have different run plans and stuff. But they, he, he's surely going to do better than Latifi is doing in that car. And at some point, the penny's got to drop with Williams if it hasn't dropped already, that they do need at least two Albon-esque drivers. At least. It's math. It's money versus ah, how, much, how, much do, how, many, how much money does a point bring me? Do, do, do you know what? I, I had forgotten, because we did talk about it on a Patreon pod, that Latifi is bringing 30 million, we think. Yeah. 30 million a season. And that is, that is an eye-watering amount of money. So you go, oh, yeah, maybe. Yeah, Steve would definitely betray us for 30 million. I think he hesitated on 40, but I think 30 would do it. Um, so, okay, so we'll see that. It will be interesting to see a Formula E driver coming back the way because I don't think we've seen an active Formula E driver then go back into a Formula One car. I love mm. the way you use the word active, so I yes. can't make that point, but uh, go ahead. Because Albon had a contract, but then he, he, never, drove yeah. the, he never drove the car. Um, and I've gone, I don't I, know. Was, did Gasly not drive like a single race? Oh, okay. That's one Maybe for the... the first New York race, Gasly Maybe, substituted yeah. for somebody. Oh, okay, so that's one for, for the fact checkers then. But that will be interesting in itself. Why don't we move on to uh, another, another mailbag question? Yeah, why not? Oh, Matt, you sneaked this in. This isn't from the mailbag. This is from Twitter. You just picked a tyre question. Well, they replied to your tweet about the mailbag, so I just assumed they wanted to be included. Okay, okay. okay. I'll sneak, I'll I'll allow it this time, but mailbag is for email questions that are sent to feedback at mistapex.net or matt at mistapex.net or spanners at mistapex.net. This is highly irregular, but we'll allow it. Okay, fine. Um, Our friend Joe at Jojo Schuster, wants to know how teams measure, evaluate tire degradation during a race. Um, And essentially, this is a question that I cannot answer, which is why I included it. But I know some things about it, and I will have to do further research to see if anyone actually knows. Fundamentally, uh, visually, is one way they do. The driver looks at the tires, and they have people looking at the tires to see, oh, are we getting a line of blisters? Do we see graining? Uh, frankly, the driver is probably one of the biggest measures of tire degradation because they, they will mark as they feel the tires going during it. But the teams will also run sensors, infrared sensors, to measure temperature, 
Now they have temperature tire pressure monitoring systems that might also have infrared so they can measure the tire from the inside temperature as well. And what they're going to be doing is they're going to be looking at data that they gather through the free practices. Like you did a 10 lap run and we see exactly how much tire wear you had at this temperature on this compound. And they're going to be using that. And then the last way they do is let's say uh, it's last year and I'm Valtteri Botas and my tires are gone and I get brought in on schedule, but uh, Lewis Hamilton is doing well on his tires. They will see how much wear is on that tire. They use a pyrometer to measure the temperature and they'll measure the tread depth left. And they'll say, well, when Valtteri pitted on lap 15, he still had 60% of his tread left. So you should be good for another X number of laps. Ooh, do you think they would ever deliberately just bring a driver in and change his strategy so that they could go, <laughs> do you know what I mean? So that they can help the number oh, one guy. Oh, you're all the way at the back. Why don't you put on some slicks and let's see what kind of lap times no, you can do, Daniel do you know Ricardo? Yes, there's that. But more, I was thinking like, oh, you're halfway through your uh, stint on the hards come in and pit here you go here's your mediums off you go just so that we can measure how much tread is left on your hards and and then we'll know uh, how well your teammate can do it wouldn't surprise me if they were far enough apart for for no undercut to happen that you might see that yeah yeah okay if only though if only we had someone on the panel whose job it was to push performance tires to the limit and measure their degradation and performance hey brad that's that's you that's literally your job so what question do you want me to answer? Because I think Matt's done quite a good job. Oh, well, that, that's good of, to know. Of, of summarizing everything. So what I'd like to do really is, that's obviously for like from a, from a team point of view, making the decisions. But for, for a driver's point of view, like how do you know, how can you tell the difference between, okay, I'm, I'm, and I'm now losing grip because we're just running out of the rubber or I'm losing performance because it's overheating and I'm not getting adhesion or... Uh, it's not interacting with the track surface because of it's going through a graining phase and it's got bobbly rubber or there's damage because there's a, 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 a blister on it. And obviously in F1, maybe you see that, but you can't see it on the rear. How do you tell the difference between those, those things? Yeah. So that's, that's a really, really good point. And it's one of those things that is easy for someone who is involved in, in driving on a track a lot to just take for granted that people watching from the nope, outside no would, just, would just understand how you know these things. So nope. ultimately, all of those scenarios, um, it, uh, you're basically measuring, uh, as a driver, you're measuring through the steering wheel, through the weight that the, the steering is providing you, how much grip you've got. It, it's, it's, a, it's a grip level assessment based on the amount of G-force you're sensing with your inner ear and the amount of response the vehicle gives you when you make an input. So when you turn the steering wheel, you expect a certain response. Obviously, when the tires are at their optimum, fresh, new, up to the correct temperature, inside the perfect window, you get a certain response. And anything outside of that, whether it's too cold, too hot, too worn, um, or blistered or damaged or whatever, there'll be a reduction in grip. So there'll be a reduction in the, um, the speed of the response from the tire. So when you make your input, it might not respond immediately. It might feel lighter through the steering wheel, almost almost certainly will, or you'll, that's, I'm talking mainly there, if you're talking about understeer, if you're getting oversteer, you will have to make corrections earlier. You know, as you, mm. as you apply less throttle than normal, you'll still be getting the rear react in a way um, where it, it's, um, you know, abnormal, it's, it's less than optimal, the rear will be sliding. So you're sensing basically how much G-force your body is under, how much weight is coming through the steering wheel, 
And all of those different things, all those different examples you gave of when there's a problem, overheating or wearing the tires out, they're effectively giving you a pretty similar experience as a driver. Ah, the way you okay. can tell which is which is by applying the the circumstances, by applying the context of the situation. So if it's lap one out of the pits and you're feeling uh, you know, a, a lack of steering weight or G-force, it's not going to be wear, is it? Because it's the first lap. So you're going to expect wear later nice. on in the yeah. stint. If you've been driving super gently on the tires and you've not been overstressing them, you've not been spinning the wheels, you've not been applying aggressive steering lock or too much steering lock or pushing really hard, it's unlikely that the problem is, or, or it's less likely that the problem is overheating. So you know what you've been doing to the tire. You know how long you've been driving on it. You know what's been happening. And you can then apply that context and say, my best assessment is that this is overheating. The, the front tires are overheating. The rear tires are overheating. And you can kind of, you get used to that. You get used to what it feels like when that pattern of grip loss happens. Um, and same with wear. And in terms of damage, I mean, this is probably quite obvious. You've seen this on the TV, but we do have a lot of new viewers, a lot of new F1 fans. If you lock up a tire, if you, if you yes. lock a wheel, you sense that pretty quickly by the severe vibration um, that you'll get through the steering wheel. So, so that's one way of, of sensing damage. Yeah, you're right, though. It's not, it isn't obvious. It's funny that, you know, you have all that knowledge and go, oh, yeah, there's people watching at home don't have a clue. Well, we, we don't have a clue, Steve. Brad, I've got a question for you. In Ooh. 20 words or less, <laughs> how, <laughs> how hard is it for a driver to um, come to grips with new tyre models when Pirelli bring them in that have different grip levels, uh, different stiffness? Um, and d different compounds, how long does it take a driver to be able to get comfortable with those so that he can begin to, you know, ha have a confident assessment of how the tyre is handling underneath him? So ultimately, the, the more time you get to, to spend with the tyre, the more different situations, the more stints you do, the more data sure. you're going to build up mentally. But really, in, in reality, in order to, to get used to the, the different type of tyre and extract pretty much the maximum out of it, you're talking just a handful of laps. You, you will feel the differences immediately, especially if you haven't, if you're not back to backing it, if you're just going out, having not driven the car for a couple of weeks or something like that. And it, and something has changed. You have a, you have a different tire construction. All you're doing all the time as a driver is just driving to the limit of grip of the front and rear axle and then dealing with what it gives you. So in the same way that the grip over a stint can change because you know, a set of tyres that you're familiar with, they're going to change the way they perform quite significantly from the beginning to the end of a stint. Different weather, rain beginning, all these different things are going to really drastically change what the driver is dealing with in terms of the feel of those tyres in the cockpit. Um, and so a different construction is kind of just another another layer of that. It's There will fundamentally be some differences the driver has to adapt to. Maybe you can't get away with quite as much steering lock uh, maybe the slip angle's not quite as good. Maybe the grip level's generally lower or generally mm. higher. But all those things you have to adapt to anyway in just the course of a normal stint generally or driving different cars over your career. So so to answer your question in way more than 20 words, um, it's very quickly. They'll get used to it very quickly, but it'll take longer to perfect like with, with any change. So good drivers like yourself uh, or F1 drivers will, will get used to it quickly. You know, you were talking about how the wheel weight changes and for you that gives you a clue as to the changing grip levels of course at our karting event we saw a lot of people 
at, at my level, sort of level and below who don't understand any of that. And what was interesting was the best grip levels on those carts seemed to be when the tyres were, were cold on the first couple of laps. But I've just been editing all the videos. And what I saw was, at, at the, especially in the C final that Matt was in, by the way, that's the worst final. Uh, once the tyres warmed up a bit, what you saw was drivers suddenly having less wheel weight because there was less grip. And they were actually turning too much on the exits of, of corners. And, and all their back ends were flipping around everywhere because suddenly... It's uh, as you get less grip, it's actually easier to turn the wheel and easier to sort of make corrections. So it's interesting that, you know, if you get yourself out into a, a go-kart or even a, a sim a, a sim with a direct drive wheel or, or a force feedback wheel, you can start interpreting the weight in your hands and relating it to what you see on the TV screen. It's particularly important when you're driving on a simulator because you generally, in most simulators, don't have the G-force to go on or certainly not very accurate G-force. Whereas with a good direct drive wheel, like the one that I'm, I'm holding right now in front of me, <laughs> um, you have very accurately represented steering force, which is you know the weight that the driver is feeling through the wheel. And that will change, as you guys all know through driving on the Sims, that will change dramatically as tyres either heat up or overheat or wear overheat out. You know, one, you, yeah. And you will get that difference in weight and that's the only thing you have to rely on you're really focused on that in a simulator because that's kind of your your key information apart from what you're seeing and hearing but mm. in real life the g-force is kind of coupled with that because they go hand in hand yeah if you've got a heavier steering wheel effectively generally you're also going to have more g-force acting on your body so you've got extra extra ways of sensing it See, Brad, I know you've got to, to leave us, but I want to make sure that everyone goes and follows you on Twitter. I have gotten over the fact that you've vastly overtaken me for followers, but you should definitely go and, and follow Brad at Bradley Philpot. That's correct. Um, or check out my YouTube channel, which I will start adding some new videos to soon. I'm it's kind of relying on, yeah. relying on old content at the <laughs> moment, but just been too busy to upload anything. But Excellent. Um, yeah, just, just search Brad Philpot on YouTube as well. Fantastic. And there's links to everybody's uh, uh, Twitter handles and and um, uh, Instagrams and their TikToks. Uh, there's a Spanners Ready TikTok. Go and find me. I posted three videos today. I think they're brilliant. Go and check them out. I think we'll get a link in the show notes as well. Uh, Brad, get yourself off. Don't get yourself in trouble. But can you leave your Zoom call on so that I don't have to change all the video scenes and everything? Um, I will certainly do that. <laughs> Matt, Thank you very much, guys. Two rumpets at MattPT. 55 people can still follow you on the internet uncle steve you, are you doing social media yet <laughs> no way i know what you do you've got sock accounts everywhere anonymous sock accounts <laughs> oh mate no i've got you know my life is toxic enough without getting involved <laughs> in twitter well fair enough uh, we'll we'll take that but we've got a question here that i think uh, that you and matt will address quite nicely and it's from ian porter who's emailed us and says hi spanners i just enjoyed the stats beaches and 2007 show and that was why we did a couple of sundays ago i'd like to put in a word for adelaide 1985 during your discussion it was mentioned that miami will transform the way grand prix are organized and it may well do however you failed to mention how transformative 1985 adelaide australian grand prix was and I, and you were alive says Ian Porter. I was four, Ian, to be fair. Uh, you should remember, it had rock concerts and lots of fan engagement, gave easy access and fun to part of the town with lots of pubs and wine bars. 
And while I, I imagine every other shop is a pub or wine bar, you know, in Australia. I know, racist, right? Um, Steve, firstly, is that true? Every other building is a, a pub or wine bar. And secondly, tell me about the 1985 Adelaide Grand Prix. Well, I wasn't at the 1985 Grand Prix. I was at the, I did go to a few of them, though. Um, but he's dead right. When they started the racing in Adelaide, um, it, it it opened a lot of people's eyes because that of all the stuff they did that went along with the race. Um, they were the first uh, Grand Prix that had a really comprehensive support um, uh. calendar that uh, went along with it, including the supercars for the first time, you know, introduced supercars to Formula One people. Um, there were lots of uh, fan displays and um, information booths and stuff that people could get in, involved in and learn. And, yes, Adelaide turned into party town for <laughs> like a week and a half and there were lots of pubs and bars close to particularly one end of the circuit, um, the top end, uh, and people were hanging out on the balconies of the bars looking out over the uh, the, the racetrack as the cars were coming around. It was party time, big time. Yeah. And, um, it, you know, I've got some friends who were in the hospitality industry in Adelaide in those days, and they talk wildly of the after-race parties that went on you know, year after year after year. So, yes, Adelaide introduced a whole bunch of new engagement and new stuff to Formula One presentations that hadn't been there before. So, yes, it was, um, you know, it, it was an important um, stepping stone for how Formula One was presented. And, and forgive my ignorance, that's a quote-unquote proper circuit. It wasn't a street track. Oh, no, it's a street track. It, it was a street track. Is Yeah, it is, it is a street track. I mean, they, they haven't the last couple of years haven't used it for supercars, but the mm. supercars are going to be back there this year again, a slightly smaller a shorter track than what the Formula One guys uh, raced. Mm. Um, but, yes, it, it runs through a parkland and then then up into the uh, west end of the city and then um, and that's where all the bars and pubs line the, the track up there. So why, why aren't we at Adelaide anymore? Or, or why don't we have two Australian Grand Prix? Well, I'd like to have two Australian Grand Prix. Why aren't we in Adelaide? Because Ron Walker and um, the Victorian government decided they were going to steal it off them. Okay, so allegedly, of, allegedly. Uh, no, no, no. Even Ron Walker would have, would have admitted okay. that when he was alive. Okay, was, I, as long as I said allegedly, I think <laughs> I think we're covered. Um, but this is it. Of all the places that the F1 circus goes, you know, Australia has got one of the the richest existing and extant motorsport cultures and heritage as well. So you're talking about the undercard. You know, there is a wealth of Australian motorsport. Oh, there is. And it has been for years and years and years. Um, and and uh, no Australian kid grows up without having some exposure to, to racing of some sort, whether it just be dirt track sprint cars running around or go-karts. Um uh, but we've, we've been televising um, cars um, in Australia, race cars in Australia, probably longer than just about anyone else, you know, live telecasts. Mm. Um, the Touring Car Championships, you know, but I remember watching them back in the late 70s, watching Bathurst and the Touring Cars back then, and it was a common thing. People did it. Now, I don't know whether there were regular car racing coverages, you know, in England for BTCC in those days. I've got no idea. Yeah, 
Yeah. So, I mean, I think this is where I get upset that there's not more focus on the support series. And I guess it's because they can't provide the same thing weekend in, weekend out. But, you know, in Australia, you have specific kangaroo safety flags. I mean, that was, um, I, I saw, I caught it on TikTok. I think it was um, Mount something, something. Panorama. Mount Panorama. Mount Panorama. Yeah, yeah. They, they had to put out kangaroo flags and they just had to wait while these two kangaroos hopped up the hill until they went off yep. and then they resumed racing again. And, and yes. no one blinked an eyelid. It was just like, yeah, well, kangaroos. Yeah, and there's been all sorts of things. I remember Dick Johnson, who's a well-known, famous Australian racer, running into a rock that had rolled onto the road of one course. day. And it was a fairly large rock too. <laughs> Australia, so we've, had a, we've had wombats. and I mean, one of the things we haven't had, which I've seen a couple of times on Formula One tracks, is people run onto the oh, track yeah. in the middle of the race. Yeah, so that's true. I think that either we've got more brains or we're too lazy. <laughs> well, I think it is that that in Australia it's trying to kill you so much that not many people live to, to your age, so there's just less people around to run onto the tracks. It's all, <laughs> it's all kangaroos. Uh, right, let's, um, let's maybe move on to our, our last question of the mailbag, and I think this will interest you as well, Steve, uh, but I think the, um, the graphics and the TV broadcasting has gotten quite a bit of attention this season, especially in Miami, where they seem to be focusing on everything but the race. And obviously, you are a a video. Well, how would you describe yourself, Steve? You're a videographer. You're a video. No, dude? I'm, I'm a writer and director primarily. Oh, okay. I mean, I I produce stuff and I edit stuff, and I it will shoot simple stuff. I'll shoot, but you know, if it's a complex stuff, I'll go and get myself a decent camera. Well, what I think um, director is 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 even more on the nose for this. Then it's, it's understanding content, and you put together all our iRacing streams. We've got another one on the twenty seventh, I believe, on Friday the twenty seventh, round five yep. of our current F three Cup, and you've been painstakingly helping me through trying to put together some of our our karting videos which will be up soon but do check out the show notes below to join us at buckmore park on september 3rd this question is from i've missed who it's from it it is simply it's simply lovely something something at gmail.com so i'm going to go ahead and assume a verstappen fan hello everyone uh as many people have become interested in f1 because of drive to survive that's fine guys let's end the gatekeeping here you don't have to declare that you are a, a Drive to Survive fan. It's absolutely fine. We're not going to make you identify your yourself. But I've become a Max Verstappen fan, he says. Oh, so close, simply. Regardless, I would like to thank you. What do you mean, regardless? So I'm a Max Verstappen fan, but regardless, I like your podcast. Fair enough. Um, the question I wanted to get to is a long email, is that he says the, the new graphics are terrible. They take up too much space. The majority of the team logos are white, and it's harder to find a team uh, on a on a board what happened to transparent backgrounds and color stripes for the team so that specific question steve and and what do you think they could do to actually fix this um this current f1 tv direction well i kind of agree with the person who wrote in what did happen to the transparent backgrounds they've gone very solid black for their graphics and i i think it makes it harder in uh, some instances to follow the action that's going on, only because they tend to have so many graphics coming up. I also agree with with the point that it's harder to quickly and easily pick out various teams on the graphics because they don't have that colour stripe that they used to have. So I'd like to go back to doing that. 
um, or find a way to put slightly um, larger team logos you know, on, on those graphic trees. Um, if the actual graphics themselves generally, I think that um, they've gone a little over the top. They seem to be just putting graphics up for the sake of putting graphics up. There are times when you need as much, uh, you know, graphic um, support uh, as a viewer as you can possibly get in tight tussles um, when two drivers are really going at it to have uh, comparison graphics up between, you know, the speed and time differences and that sort of thing is really good. But just throwing up graphics in the middle of a wide shot, I don't think really helps very much. I think the graphics need to be triggered by the story of the race. Now, that's the important thing. You tell the story of the race. You don't just show it. Yeah, and it's the same in commentary as well. I, I've been having this this conversation with with other commentators when how how they say how do you follow a race? How do you do you know when you when you look over there that it's that driver? And you say, well, because I'm following the story of the race unfold, so I know Hutchinson is is the head of a big train, for example. So I'm looking out for Hutchinson once the main leaders have have gone through. And I think that's what wasn't being followed in Miami because there was loads of midfield battles, but the story of that race wasn't wasn't unfolding. But in the in F1's defence, they are trying a lot of things. So whether you're thinking like maybe they're trying too many things, for example, like when they have the little squares underneath the moving car. So you're on an onboard and they have the little squares under a moving car to say, well, that's Alonso. It's like, well... I could figure it out, you know, if you just had Alonso on the timing screen, I'd probably figure out that that's Alonso up ahead. But then they do really, there's some really great things where they have, uh, if there's another battle in the timing tree, they show a picture in picture of that battle. Mm. So you're not mixing, missing it. Could this just be a case of, look, they're throwing a lot of stuff at the wall at the moment and we shouldn't like come down heavy on, on innovation. Oh, I don't think we should come down heavy on innovation at all. I think that, that they should be trying out new ways, but I don't think that they should be trying out the new things on a live broadcast necessarily. They've got a, you know full replays of the whole races. Why aren't their development team trying this stuff out? Oh yeah, that's a good point. Uh, you know, on on replays and saying, oh yeah, that works. That doesn't work. Part of the problem is, I think, that the people that do the graphics aren't necessarily Formula One fans. Their graphics. Yeah, you know, they're uh-huh. um, graphics people who have other interests, and you know, doing the Formula One graphics is just one of the things they're paid to do. Mm. Um, I think over a period of time, AWS will develop a team of graphics people who are Formula One aficionados, and they will be able to add more value to that whole graphic display because they're fans. As a Formula One fan, what I love more than anything is graphics that gives me useful information and two things that I would love to see, and you can tell me why I can't have them, Steve, in a moment, I'm sure, is especially in wide shots, what turn number are we on in the track? Where are we on the track? Because visually, uh, there are certain tracks where it can be really hard to tell, is this turn two or turn 17? Yeah, And that can be useful to know. And the other thing I would dearly, dearly love to know is when we're looking at the timing tree with everyone's times, could you just tell me what tire they used to set that time, please? So I know that the Mercedes was third on the soft tire and only the back of 
Red Bull by a tenth who was on the hard tire. That makes a difference. And I would love to have that information. I, I think that, well, in terms of the corner numbers, um, they do actually show corner numbers. I don't think they show them all the time, but they certainly, I mean, they're only tiny. They used to have them a bit bigger. Last year, they had them a bit bigger in the bottom right-hand, uh, bottom right-hand corner. These days, they're a bit smaller, but still in the bottom left-hand corner. And in most of the wide shots, as the car they're following is going through a corner, they put up that corner number, and then they take it off again. And then they'll put it up when it gets to the next corner. It's not a great way to do it, but at least they are trying to do that. In terms of the tyres, yes, it would be really good to have the tyre information up the whole time. I think part of the problem is that a tree is so wide on yeah. the screen and the more things you add onto it, the less of the racing that you're seeing, particularly if they're going for these full black um, backgrounds behind the graphics. If you've got transparent backgrounds or grayed off backgrounds mm. behind the, the graphics, you can still see a little bit of the action behind them, so it's not quite a, the same issue. Just make the times the colour of the tyres. There you go. You've come at that sideways. Yeah. But, but also, I mean, what tyres the cars are on, yes, if it's highlights, I, I could see, I could imagine, yes, you'll need that. When you're watching it live, like you're saying, as a viewer, if they've allowed us, if they've given us the tools to follow the story of the race, you know, what tyres they're on is a kind of integral. Uh, integral to to that to the story of the race. So you know, if you're going to have to choose real estate, I would say that would be a you know a an every now and then graphic, and then you 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 have to take some responsibility as the viewer to log that as well. But I I, I like it when they have the beads you know on a on a track map in the corner. I think that's really important to understanding the story of the race as well. I'd like to see that on there more often so that you can you can see the gaps developing and you can have a visualization of of the whole picture but again not wanting to be too negative there are some things that have have really improved like having a rear view mirror camera at the same time on they said so they had the onboard mat and then they've had the rear view on the dash yeah and uh can i just say thank you visor cam Oh yeah, and that was the other thing I'd just written down as well. The visor cam is incredible. I, I would want it. I want it in the middle. I want it in the. Mm. Steve doesn't like it. Well, no, it's not a matter of don't like it. It doesn't give you a, a true representation of what the driver is seeing. It's because it's because off to the side. At, well, it's not only that. Our vision system has the ability to remove lots of jiggling, you know, jiggling yeah. and shaking automatically out of the system. Your brain just filters it out. What we see is a camera that has no stabilisation on it. So every time you go over a bump, the thing is, you know, blurry and nasty. Now, a driver doesn't see it like that. If they want to make this camera work, they must have stabilisation built into it. Then Mm. it will begin to give us a realistic, uh, you know, look at what the driver is seeing. Yeah, because for for the driver, if he moves his head suddenly to the left, he doesn't really experience a visual shift because his, no. his, the, your brain picks up your head movement first and it picks up the acceleration of your, your head so it all seems stable to you. But he's moving the camera for you and that jolts your, your brain movement. That's, a, that's exactly the explanation for it. Nice. Yep. I listen to science podcasts. Matt? <laughs> On the other hand... Visor cam gives you a visual impression of yeah. the forces, the 
drivers are experiencing and more importantly shows me almost everything that is on their steering wheel and how they are manipulating it i I think you know in small doses it's good i wouldn't want to sit and watch the whole race from visor cam but just to get that experience and to be you know in there and as much as you're saying steve yes we don't get the same stabilization as the driver we also are getting a, a sense of the violence of movement that the driver is experiencing. Oh, so, yeah, it's good for that. Yeah. It's very good for that. So I think in small bursts, yeah. I agree with you that uh, it needs to be put in the middle of the visor yeah. somehow. Having it off to the side that gives does you my a, head in. a fake I can't kind stand of perspective, it. Yeah. yeah. It makes me It makes me feel a bit – that's the one that makes me feel a bit a bit uh, queasy when they do it. Mm. Uh, guys, this has been a, a fantastic mailbag. I've really loved the way that you, you guys listening have responded to it, and we are hopefully getting better – at making it worth emailing us. I promise you, we always have always read all the feedback. Now uh, I want to you know, make it a little bit more, more interactive. I've never been good at replying, but if we have these mailbag episodes, I will at least talk about them. So we are going to have a more normal race review. We're back on European times. Thank goodness for that. You guys don't know how hard it's been. You don't know how hard it's been, Steve, for us Brits. The last... <laughs> Is that a tiny violin, Steve, that you're playing? Uh, yes. <laughs> so uh, what time is the Barcelona Grand Prix for you, Steve? Um, 11 o'clock start Oh, night, really? on Sunday night. Yes. Okay. So, like, is there There should be some law that lets F1 fans off in Australia. Like, uh, you can all come in at 10, Bruce. Don't worry about it. But, we know you're an F1 yeah, fan. Yeah, but that, yes, okay. Are you going to do that? Because the race finishes at 1 o'clock and I go and get three hours worth of sleep and then get up for the podcast. <laughs> Okay, yeah, no special dispensation, no. You're absolutely right. <laughs> I didn't think so. I'm not going to do that. Um, but we will be here at around 8pm on the on the evening of the race. So Sunday evening, 8pm, come and join us. And, and as a special bonus, it's a Matt Trumpets free show, Matt. You can't be bothered. Uh, well, I, I could be bothered, but I'm getting more money to be bothered by playing the trumpet. Oh, I see. Okay, right. This is why you need to support us at patreon.com forward slash Missed Apex so I can make it more worthwhile for Matt to accept these gigs instead of trumpeting gigs. But we will be here with Chris Stevens, Kyle Power, and Jonathan Simon as well. So we'll have a really fun race review for you from 8 p.m. on Sunday. But wherever we see you next, work hard, be kind, and have fun. This was Missed Apex Podcast. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. 
Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.